So we'll be in Genesis 20. I'll introduce the chapter this way. Um, eight years ago, 2009, I took my family, at that time four kids, to India. So Elijah was one year old, Gabrielle was four years old, Isabella was six, and Carissa was eight. Now that I think about that, I just think that was stupid. <laughs> but I did it, and Charity was with me, and there were parts that were awesome, and there were parts that were hard. So the first day we get to India, we stay in this hotel, and we come down for breakfast, and my kids are so excited for breakfast. But breakfast in India is not pancakes and French toast and orange juice. It's very different. So we get down there, and there's like curry and curry and curry, and like raw fish, and pickled lime. But there was one plate of these round pastries with a hole in them. And so my kids saw that, and they're like big, giant eyes. So they all grab a plate, and we all kind of move through the line, and they each grab one of these donuts, and they put it on their plate. And so we sit down, and I sit down, and they look at my plate, and I'd been there four times before. And they said, Dad, you don't have one of these. I said, yep, I prefer pickled lime and curry. And they're like, oh, okay. So we prayed. Right when we finished praying, it was like synchronized eating. All of them grabbed that pastry, stuffed it in their mouth, biggest bite they could ever take, huh? one chew, and then, ah, back on their plate. Because it was deep fried curry <laughs> with giant peppercorns in it. It's the nastiest thing. I did it the first time I went there, too. And so all my kids were like, ah, and they looked at me going, Dad, why didn't you tell us? I said, because you didn't ask. <laughs> that was one of the highlights of the trip for me. <laughs> it's not what it appeared. So here's what we have. We have Abraham. He is the chosen one of Yahweh. Abraham, you're my guy. Through you, I am going to bless all the families of earth. You are my guy. You're number one. Walk with me. Talk with me. Be my representative on earth. You're it. Right? Well, in chapter 20, he doesn't look like it. He's like one of those donuts. What he's supposed to be and what he is are very different. So let's check out his story. Verse 1, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, this is the desert, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. So Kadesh would be like Burns, Oregon. So he's going further than Burns, Oregon. What's after Burns, Oregon? Nothing, right? He's in nothing land. So this is telling you something right here. Why would Abraham leave this pretty nice place called Hebron that's really beautiful and it's kind of cool, it's a little bit higher, it's not hot. Why would he leave that really nice spot and then go to Nowheresville? Context. What happened in chapter 19? Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. 
right? He watched it happen. So it would be like living next to Mount St. Helens after it exploded. What would you want to do? Move. I don't think I want to be near this place anymore. I want to move. So he has whatever, it's shock and awe. He is like, I need to get out of this place. This is a frightening area right now. I'm going to get as far away as I can. I'm going to Burns, Oregon. So he goes there, right? Lives there a while, but then it says he sojourned in Gerar. Now this is back over to the coast. So he, get t- he got tired of the desert, got tired of the heat, and he heads over to the coast, which is a Philistine area, all right? And here's what happens. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. We've heard this before. We've seen this before. Sarah now, though, is 90 years old. There you have it. What was her secret? Oil of a lay? I don't know, man. So the rabbis say that God was rejuvenating her, like fountain of youth, like Benjamin Button or something, was rejuvenating her so that she could then be mom to Isaac. I don't know what happened, but Gerar, the king of Abimelech, which is a title, uh, he takes her into his harem, right? So that sets us up. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Fascinating text. So this is Abraham's pattern. Uh, We talked about this a bit. Uh, I'll add in some stuff, but number one, what I find interesting is this. Abimelech, in this dream, assumes that God is just. Did you notice that? He really goes for God's justice. Wait a second. I'm an innocent man, integrity of my heart. He goes for God's justice. Which if you know ancient stuff about gods, they weren't always the most just. They were actually quite capricious if you study them. You know the story of Tantalus. Like he was, punch- he was punished uh, by every time he tried to reach his face down to drink water, what would happen to the water? It would go away. 
Every, and there was grapes above him. Every time he tried to reach up and grab the grapes, what would happen to them? They'd get pulled away from him. And that he spent his eternity trying to drink some water and trying to get some grapes. Not a very just system. Or syphysis. Right? He is punished but to roll the rock up this hill. And when he gets to the top, what would happen? He would roll down the other side. He would roll it back up. Just his entire life is rolling this hill, this rock up a hill, just to see it roll down the other side. A lot of people have taken that as, hey, it's just, it, it, that's what life is, isn't it? You go to work, you take care of the stack of papers, you go home, you come back the next morning, what do you have on your desk? New stack of papers. You wash all the dishes, you go to bed, somehow during the night, there's another stack of dishes. You wash all the laundry, you come out in the morning, somehow there's another little laundry. You mow the grass, two days later, what do you do? You mow the grass. So there's all that. But what you have in ancient things about gods is they were not just. But Abimelech has been hearing something about Yahweh, and he assumes God is just. I like that. Number two, notice this. It says that God kept him from sinning. I know your heart. I know your innocence, and I didn't let you sin against me. I like that. People will come to me because of our day and age, and they'll say, Matt, can you believe how bad things are? My standard answer to them is this. I can't believe they're not worse. I know humans, and I know history, and honestly, I can't believe things aren't a lot worse. What God is saying here is really important theologically. I kept you from sinning. I didn't let you do it. So here's the way I think about God. God is the control rods in a nuclear reaction. Do you know what a control rod does? So you have a nuclear reaction happening. You want electricity out of it. You don't want a bomb. Well, if you just let nuclear material do what they're going to do, they explode. It's a bad thing. But if you can stick a control rod down in there, what it does is it absorbs the particles that normally would collide with more and cause more chain reactions, and it stops it. It keeps it at a low reaction rather than an explosion. That's what God has done, I think, for all of human history. He's been the control rods that have kept society from going Mad Max or Book of Eli. He's kept it from doing that. He's the control rods. He absorbs it. So if you look at the Bible, here's what you see. When it comes to sin, God sometimes frustrates sin. God sometimes limits sin. And God almost always will bring good out of human sin. That's normally what you see. And right here, it's the same thing. I didn't let you touch her. When you read that, there should be a little bell that goes off in your mind that says this, then why didn't God do that for me? Bad things have happened to me. Hard things have happened to me. Why didn't God step in like he did with Abimelech and Sarah? Why didn't he do that? Why doesn't God in Judges 19, one of the most horrific stories in the Bible, the Levite and his concubine, why didn't God step in there? You start asking those kind of questions. God doesn't always limit 
sin. So why not? There is an entire book in the Bible that addresses this one issue. Do you know what that book is called? It's called the book of Job. Is it not? That's what that book is. And when you and I read it, we get a very different perspective, don't we? We start that book out, and what's the first scene? This being called the Ha Satan, literally the Satan, the accuser, shows up and has this interaction with Yahweh. Job never knows that, right? He doesn't know that there maybe is more out there than him. And you know the story. Man, in one day, Job's sitting, called by God, the most righteous man on earth. He's top dog. He's the best I have. In one day, he has a servant running and say, hey, man, I was out in the field today. And we were taking care of your oxen. And we were taking care of your donkeys. And the Sabians came and they swept in on us and they killed everybody. They stole all of your oxen, all of your donkeys, and I alone escaped to bring you this news. Before he can finish, another dude comes running in. Ah, I was out with your sheep and your shepherds. And a fire from heaven, this is not normal, fire from heaven came, burned them all up, killed all your servants. I alone escaped to bring you this news. Before he can finish talking, Another servant comes running in, Job, Job, oh man, I was with your camels and the Chaldeans came and they swept in on us and they killed all the servants. They stole all of your camels and I alone have escaped to bring you this message. Before he can finish, another servant comes rushing in, Job, Job, bad news. I was with your sons and your daughters in their house and a mighty wind blew the house over and killed all your servants and all your sons and all your daughters and I alone have escaped to bring you this news. And Job falls on his face and says, naked I came from the womb, naked I shall return, right? And then his wife, who's still with him, tells him, curse God and die. To which Job then says, God, could I trade her for a camel? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the story. We get a whole, we get it front loaded though with this other dimension. And if you read the book of Job, what you realize is this, that there's a whole lot happening in that book that's kind of amazing because these three buddies show up and really there's, there's the big three that they discuss. God's justice, Job's righteousness, and what's called the retribution principle. The retribution principle is real simple. If you do the right thing, you'll be rewarded. If you do the wrong thing, You'll be punished, right? Those are the three things that they go round and round. If you keep those three things in mind, God's justice, Job's righteousness, and the retribution principle, you make sense of their arguments. Because what happens is this, Job is saying, I'm righteous. I believe in the retribution principle. And he starts to doubt God's justice. That's what happens to Job. Over the course of the book, he starts to say, I don't know. I don't know about God anymore, right? His three buddies say, God is just, retribution principle works, you must be a sinner, right? That's the whole book. And it just goes round and round and round and round and round and round. Then God shows up. What does God do? Here's what God does. Chapter 38. He goes, I'm just, you're righteous. Doubt the retribution principle. You think this is how the world works? And what God really begins to do is just say to Job, hey, look it, man. Don't trust the retribution, don't trust the retribution principle. Trust me. 
trust me. Trust my wisdom. It's the Hebrew word chokmah. I have wisdom that you do not have. So he just starts by saying, look at the world. Do you know how the wild donkey does his thing? You don't, right? Do you know how the wild horse gets its strength? You don't. Do you know how the ostrich, it seems like it leaves its egg? What does it do? Do you understand any of these things? The desert that you have never seen and not a man has ever stepped foot on, I water it for a purpose. Job, there are bigger things at play than you even have a clue about. We get an entrance, uh, uh, a little bit of info about that in chapter one. There's bigger things at play, Job. You have to trust me on this. You have to trust my chokmah, my wisdom. Not the retribution principle, You have to trust my chokmah. That's really the entire book. God comes and says that. He's really saying this. This world is good, but it's also raw and dangerous. It's good, but man, there's raw, dangerous stuff. So he brings up two creatures, the behemoth, which nobody knows what it is, and the Leviathan, right? He brings up these two creatures that are, listen, that's the world. It's it's good, but it's also dangerous. So be so careful, careful, careful. I love that. And if the Leviathan crushes you and kills you, it's not because I'm angry with you. It's just you mess with the wrong thing because the world is dangerous. The Leviathan is just a misunderstood sea monster. Get it right, right? It's a brilliant, brilliant book. And what it's saying is be careful about the retribution principle. We think that's the way things have to work. And God's saying, no way. So when I want to or you want to say, I'm going to force my will on this world, oh, be so careful about that. Because we can say the world is supposed to work this way, and very often it will not. And like Job, we're sitting there going, well, what happened? Well, you're trusting in the retribution principle. Instead of saying, I trust in a higher wisdom called chokmah, God's wisdom that goes over all this stuff. He has the big picture. He knows how things are going to work out. And I trust him, period. And that's really what you're beginning to see right here. God's saying, at times I'll keep people from sin, chapter 20, because I have a big, big picture in mind, the end in mind. It's very important that this happens this way, but not always. And so ultimately the job for me and you is to say, okay, okay, I trust you. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. Number three, so... Abimelech assumes God's justice. God says, I limit and frustrate and didn't even allow you to sin. Number three, Abimelech, his heart matters. So we could say from the outward, Abimelech looks like one of these Genesis 6 kings that just take women and build their harems and do all this stuff. And yet God himself says, no, you're innocent. I saw your heart. There's integrity there. I love that. I love that. 1 Samuel 16 builds on this where God says to Samuel, hey, man judges on outward appearance, but I judge on the heart. Proverbs 11, three, the integrity of a man's heart will keep him, will guard him, will guide him, literally in the Hebrew. God knows your heart. God knows my heart. We will not trick him. We might look outwardly like a donut, but be filled with peppercorns and curry. God knows God knows. And very often we can be shocked by like what we think is a perfect family that all of a sudden just explodes. Well, who knew what was really happening there? God does. And that can either be super comforting or it can be super, super worrying, depending on our hearts. I pray our hearts are right before God because he knows us. 
Then lastly, we have lying Abraham, who is the first person in the Bible to be called a what? A prophet, a nabi. You have lying Abraham, who verse seven, God says, he's a prophet. What do prophets do? What does a prophet do? What's prophesying? Speaking. What's Abraham's problem? He's a liar. Do you see the irony in this? I mean, it's really funny. He's my prophet. He's a liar. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but he's still my prophet. <laughs> I mean, it's ironic. You have God. Yeah, I know. He's supposed to speak for me, and he's kind of a liar, but he's still my prophet. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. We, I think, put a higher pressure on ourselves than God does. Right? Psalm 103, I know your frame, I know you're but dust, and I have pity on you. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Do you know why? Fundamentally, most people get the Bible wrong. Most people read this book and here's what they're looking for. They're looking for heroes to follow. I'm going to be like David, go slay a giant. I'm going to be like Abraham, man of faith. I'm going to be like, right? Most people read this book to try to find out, grab like characters of faith and heroes of the faith and, and exemplify them and be like them. Moral lessons, whatever it is. That is not this book at all. The main story of the Bible, do you know what it is? It's one thing. I've said it once, twice, maybe 10 times. I'm going to keep saying it. There is one main theme to the Bible. What is it? Redemption. It is God redeeming a ganked out, broken people from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 21. The main message of the Bible is redemption. I'm going to take broken, ganked out, crooked, screwed up people, and by my grace and by my mercy, I will turn them into my prophets and my people, and they will walk with me, and they'll be transformed by me. That is it. I'll take this world system with its good and with its bad, with its rawness and with its danger, and I'm going to take all these ingredients, and I'm going to use those to create a people that I will exist in eternity with. That's what the Bible is about. It's not moral lessons. It's not trying to find out how to be better. It's trusting this one that has a redemptive plan. When I get that, it gives me so much hope. It gives me hope for my brother. It gives me hope for my sister. It gives me hope for myself. It gives me hope for my family. It gives me hope for the guy that I'm just like, I can't believe that guy. He keeps screwing up, right? Like Abraham, who keeps screwing up. And yet God is not ashamed to call him his prophet. He's my prophet. I love that. It explains why sometimes pagans, Abimelech, seem more moral than God's people. Because it could be that God's people are really, really screwed up and they're moving forward on that path of sanctification and change and transformation. And this other person had a pretty good life and never kind of experienced the pain and the stuff, so they're way further up already. So they might look more moral, but that's not what the Bible's about. It's not about being moral people. It's about being a redeemed people who are trans, being transformed by God's grace. And when you get that, here's what it does to you. You stop being a self-righteous jerk and judgmental. It really transforms you because you realize, hey, God has a plan for that person. God's moving them. God's not ashamed to call them his brother, then neither should I. God says they're but dust and he has pity on them like his kids. Then I should have that same pity on them as well.
It transforms you. You become what you're supposed to become. So I love that right here. So here's the story. Here's what happens. Verse 8. We did this on Sunday. Um, spent a lot of time. Well, it wasn't this Sunday. It was last two Sundays ago. But spent a lot of time here. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Just rebuked. Pagan king rebuking Yahweh's prophet. How ironic. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? that you did this thing. And Abraham said, I did it because I thought. You should underline that. (laughs) Because I thought. There is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindest you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. The confrontation. And we spent whatever it was, 45 minutes really on this confrontation. And Abraham does what men have always done when they're caught in their sin. He begins to say that the that I had no choice. Sin always makes sense to us. You can always make sense of sin. This is, I had no choice. I had to do it this way. I had no other option. Sin always makes sense. And then he justifies himself, right? She, she is, she's, she's my half-sister. Well, it was a half-truth that got Jesus put on the cross. Do you know that? He said that destroy this temple and in three days he'll re- rebuild it right? It's half-truth. He said that, but he wasn't talking about the temple. What was he talking about? His body, right? Half-truth got Jesus crucified. A half-truth is a whole lie. So, all right, you can justify yourself. Then he blames. Who does he blame in this whole thing? Verse 13. He blames God. God made me leave my home, so I'm afraid now. You're blaming God. And then he, I call it spousal blackmail. Do this kindness to me, wife. Sin for me. I mean, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal. Right? This is God's prophet <laughs> speaking God's word, if you would. It's unbelievable. It's just amazing. Well, that was Sunday. You can podcast it. Uh, I'll give you one more thing that I find fascinating. Verse 10, I have the ESV. Does anyone have any other translations about what Abimelech says to Abraham? What did you see that you did this thing? What does it say? What did you intend? What did you have in view? It's a really tough tough translation. So there should be a lot of kind of, uh uh-huh. I think the NAS gets it right. And Abimelech says this, what have you encountered that you would do this thing to me? What Abimelech is asking is a great question. Dude, what happened to you? What happened to you that you would do this thing to me and my people? 
Bro, what's gone wrong in you? What, what's crooked in you? That's really what Abimelech, it's such a fantastic question. What in life has bent you that you would begin to do this to us? So I have a saying, and I use it a lot with people. And it's this, pain that is not transformed will be transferred. What have you encountered? What pain have you gone through in your life? If you don't let that pain be transformed in some way, then guess what? You are going to do what Abraham does to Abimelech. You're going to start transferring that and hurting other people. You're just going to unlock the grenade and just throw it out there, and people will get hurt around you all the time. Abraham, what have you encountered in life? What fears? What what is it that's causing you now to begin to live a life that's hurting all these people around you? Pain that is not transformed will be transferred. You'll start hurting people around you. And the only way that I've ever seen real deep pain be transformed in a person's life is through grace. There is no other transforming power. To know what forgiveness is, to know what to be loved is, to know what to be accepted is, to know those things so deep in your heart that it all of a sudden takes that that hardness and just melts it. Only grace can transform us. Such a great question. What have you encountered that you would do this to us? Hmm. So then it concludes this way. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham (laughs) and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. If you remember Pharaoh when, when Pharaoh, when Abraham did this to Pharaoh in chapter 12, what did Pharaoh say? Get out of here. It's four words in the Hebrew. <laughs> in the English, we had get out of here jerk, right? Just get out of here. Abimelech's very different, super generous. Um, to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I've given your brother. I wonder if you did the air quotes. I did, gave your brother <laughs> a thousand Pieces of silver, which is, uh, it's $7 million. It's unbelievable. Like the generosity of Abimelech. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all. I haven't touched you, is what he's saying. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. The lying, sin always makes sense. Justifying, blaming, manipulating Abraham praise, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. What had happened was nobody was having kids. So that's why Abimelech said, you're going to kill my entire people here. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. What a crazy story. So in chapter 21, we'll see... The repair of their relationship, Abimelech and Abraham, is real important because it's going to come into play. All right? So I'll make a couple notes on this, three notes, and then we'll be done. Number one, this chapter, it's not introducing us to this because we've seen a little bit of it, but it's really fleshing out the idea that life can be unfair. Right? Ask Abimelech. If life's unfair, what did I do, man? I was doing everything right. What did I do? 
God's word, the book you hold, does not shy away from those kind of questions and those kind of issues. It doesn't shy away from them. That life is wrinkled and there's hills and there's valleys and there's hard things and there's unfair things. God's word does not shy away from that. But what believers want to do is this. We want to be like Job's three buddies and we want to iron out all the wrinkles and make life seem like it's just always going to be this way. Even though in our hearts, we really know it's not. There's actually a lot of wrinkles in life and there's a lot of things that we can't control. And there's a lot of things that just don't make sense. And there's a lot of things that, that we don't get chapter one of Job very often. We don't get it. We don't understand that part of it. And so we better have some other system of dealing with it. So God's word just is, it, it, I love it. The very testimony of the Bible is this. If you're reading through the Bible with us right now, and I hope you are, it's so huge. It shapes the way you think. So if you're reading through the Bible right now, we are in what's called the wisdom literature. Job, kind of Psalms. Psalms has some wisdom literature in it. But the big ones are Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Those are huge, huge books when it comes to the wrinkles of life and reality and trying to integrate your life. When you read those three books, sit down, get a lot of time, cup of PG Tips coffee, because God speaks when you are drinking PG Tips coffee. <laughs> whatever it is, or PG Tips tea, I should say, or coffee or whatever it is, or whatever you like to drink, get something and take some time and read them slowly and thoughtfully because it wrinkles life. So here's what these three books are. I'll give you the outline as you go through them, all right? Proverbs is the center. Proverbs is this. Proverbs is what life looks like under God's rule. So if you work hard, you get rewarded. If you are friendly, you're gonna make friends, right? If you do things right, you will be Rewarded. It's, it's how life is to normally work. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful, right? It's the center. But then you have Job and Ecclesiastes that are on the extremes because that's not always how life works. So Job, this extreme over here, Job is a book about a man who loses everything and how to process that. How do you process that kind of pain? How do you go through the justice of God, retribution principle? How do you go through, man, I know I don't deserve this. How do you go through that? That's the book of Job. You sit and you think, you listen to the arguments that these friends have, you listen to God's reply, you soak in chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. It tells you what happens when you go through loss and everybody's gonna go through loss. Not loss like Job, but we'll all lose something. So what's the answer then? You study and you think through the book of Job. The other side is this, Ecclesiastes. So Job is a man who loses everything. Ecclesiastes is a man who has everything, right? He doesn't need anything else. What happens to him? He hates life. Read chapter two, right? I'm the king. I had everything. I had you know, I, I bought the party. I had 15,000 people in my house every single Saturday night. I got sick of it. You know, I, I just wanted to die. He had everything and he hated life. Here was his problem. He looked at people and circumstances to make him happy. But when people 
and circumstances did not make him happy, who did he blame? People and circumstances. I had a thousand wives, and I'm still looking for the right one. That's chapter seven, right? Because he was looking for a person to make him happy. Circumstances. I built this. I built that. I did all this stuff, and I was still unhappy. And men still make that same mistake today. Looking at people around them or the circumstances of life to make them happy. And when they don't, they blame people. And If my wife was just this, or if my husband was just this, if uh, my job was, if my boss was, whatever it is, we start just, if we think people and circumstances will make us happy, then we'll always be able to point our finger at something. And so Ecclesiastes just concludes by saying, man, I, I was totally wrong. I was totally wrong. Chapter 12, verse 9. That's not it. That will never do it for you. It's really trust the hokma of God. Do what God tells you. His hokma. that's what you need to be relying on. Not people or circumstances. They will disappoint you, right? So you have just these brilliant books. And over all three of them is God's overarching hokma. Trust me, ultimately. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your ability. Don't trust your type A-ness. Trust me that there's a bigger plan to this, that you don't have all the information, and I do, and trust me in it. That's what those three books at the end of them tell you and me. And when you do that, guess what happens to you? You have what the Bible calls shalom. I just have a peace that passes all understanding. Why? Because I'm trusting the designer and the sustainer of the universe. That's what I trust. So they're brilliant, right? So this chapter introduces us to that. Sometimes life is unfair. Number two, Abraham is alone in enemy territory. He's over in the Philistine land, really by himself. Lot's gone now. I don't even know if he knows if Lot's alive because he just took off after Sodom got destroyed. So he's all alone in enemy territory, and that's when he starts to fail. There's a great book by Bonhoeffer, where he's, it's called Life Together. And he just talks about how the, the Christian life is not to be this isolated thing, like look out, and he says this literally, uh, sin wants to separate the man from community. Because when sin separates the man from community, he becomes its slave. Because the man then begins to be dominated by that sin, whatever it is. And then he begins to fear going back to the community because of rejection or, hey, my mask is going to be tore off or they'll know I'm a failure. They'll know I'm like Abraham. I'm supposed to be God's prophet and I'm a lying chicken, right? And so it keeps them in isolation. Listen, we are in enemy territory. Do you know that? From Genesis 3 until Jesus returns in Revelation 20, we're in, uh, we're in enemy territory. When Jesus is tempted by Satan, Satan offers him all the kingdoms of earth. What does Jesus say? No way, man, they're already mine. No, he doesn't say that. Because of what happened with Adam being given earth to rule, fails, he turns over, if you would, rightful rule of this world to evil powers. We're in enemy territory. You better have a community of people around you that know you and love you and understand you and know your weaknesses and your strengths and will call you and help you and come alongside you. If not, you'll be like Abraham. End up in these patterns of sin. 
that just detonate you, hurt your marriage, hurt relationships, all those kind of things. Thirdly, and I mentioned this two Sundays ago, Isaac does the exact same thing that Abraham does. So we go down the road a number of years. Isaac, with his bride, Rebecca, shows up in a bad spot and lies about her and says, she's my sister. Dads, be so careful. Be so careful. Coming up, dads, be so careful. This is the best analogy I've ever heard of parenting. Parents, we're like the drivers of a ski boat. And we drive that ski boat and we set the trajectory of that ski boat. And then your kid, they're like the skier on the back. And they're going to go around and try to get out to troubled water and try to do some stuff and get a little crazy, right? But as long as you are trajectory north, whatever it is, true north, you're going to hit waves. You're going to make mistakes, no doubt about it. Don't do what Abraham did. Don't manipulate. Don't do spousal blackmail. Don't justify yourself. Don't blame. Men are terrible blamers. I find this in myself, right? We just want to blame. We We want somebody else to take the fall for our stuff. Right? I wouldn't have wrecked the car if you hadn't parked yours back there. Like, there's always something. It's so childish, right? Like, it's so amazing. Men just have this. It's exactly what my kids do. Right? Kids crying. I'm like, what happened to you? She hit me. I'll go to the she and say, why did you hit your sister? I know the next two words. Because she, right? Blame. I'm just waiting for one of them to say, because I'm a sinner. I'm like, oh, free car. I'm giving. What do you want? Half my kingdom is yours. But no, we all have this in us. Don't be that way. You apologize. You have humility. Hey, I'm in process too. Abraham's 100 years old and he's still lying. I'm in process too. We do all these, but you keep that boat in a trajectory of true north as we're going. And the kids, they, they go crazy, no doubt about it. They will have some of that, but you keep pulling them in the right direction day after day after day. You're true north. You're going that direction. That's what I think as a good parent. Make mistakes, apologize, be humble, but keep your true north. Now we're heading for Jesus and his kingdom, and this is what we're about. And we trust the goodness and generosity of God. And yeah, I can't understand this, but I trust the hope of God, that he has a plan of redemption, that one day we'll see Revelation 20 come true, where all that is wrong and all that is evil is wrapped up and thrown into a lake of fire. And we live the way we are designed to live in the beginning for eternity. That's our hope. And so we're going to take communion. And here's what I want you to think through as we take communion. I want you to thank Jesus for his mission of redemption. I want you to be reminded that he came because Matt Heverly was broken. Because you were broken. Not somebody else, not the, the dude down the street from you, not the pot farmer. He, he came for them too, but he also, he came for your brokenness. And he's on a process of redeeming you. And as we allow ourselves to saturate in his word, having our minds shaped by God's word, we start to have that Romans 12, 1 and 2, the transforming of the mind. And so we eat and we drink redemption. That's what we eat. And we celebrate that. Jesus, you came for lying chickens like Abraham. And you came for lying chickens like Matt Heverly. So redeem me and make me more like you. Our goal is not Abraham or Paul or Peter. Our goal 
is to be like Jesus. That's our goal. And so Jesus, this day, we find ourselves in Abraham, fearful, justifying sin, blaming you, (laughs) hurting our spouses. And yet, deep in the integrity of our hearts, we don't want to be that way. We want to be transformed. We want to be remade. And so this evening, Lord, as we partake in your body and in your blood, we pray that this day, Lord, you would be redeeming us. That even as Isaiah 35 says, that you would take the crooked ways and make them straight. We thank you that you limit and frustrate and you can even bring good from evil as we see in this chapter. Abraham gets blessed. Your promise is true that you are gonna bless people through him. And so may you take even our mistakes that we made this day or this week or this month and may you straighten them out and turn them into something good for your glory and for our joy. So may we eat and we drink of your strength and your power.